Hello and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the ALT Learn Podcast. I'm John Tate and I'll be your host as we break down the craft of teaching and the science of learning, what this pedagogy looks like in the classroom, and get to find out how our teachers are turning all this theory into practice. So, let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of the ALT Learn Podcast, where we've got a great episode lined up for you today discussing the understanding of pathological demand avoidance or PDA for short, which is a profile on the autism spectrum. So I'm pleased to say that alongside me on today's show, we have an external guest to the podcast, Julie Davis. Julie is an education advisor, trustee, and trainer for the PDA Society, who provide information, support, and training about PDA for individuals, families, and professionals. A warm welcome to the podcast, Julie, and a big thanks for coming on to discuss this with me today. Well, hi, John. Thank you so much for asking the PDA Society to take part. It's great to be here. Wonderful. Right, so... Let's start right at the beginning then here, because um, I'm sure just like me, there are lots of our listeners out there who are either teachers or school leaders who might not know what pathological demand avoidance is. So can you give us an overview of how this links with autism? Okay, actually, if I can begin with your last point in relation to the link Mm. with autism. So pathological demand avoidance is widely, but not universally, understood to be a profile of autism. Mm -hmm. So people meet the criteria criteria for autism, meaning that they have some differences in social interaction, communication, and sensory processing, and also some restrictive or repetitive behaviors. Mm-hmm. But it's really important to know that, however, these traits may not always be that obvious with the PDA profile, at least until we get to know someone. Mm. And then in addition, they're going to have many of the key features of a PDA profile which we discuss in detail through our training. But just to clarify today, PDA involves the avoidance of everyday demands and the use of social strategies as part of this avoidance. Uh So autistic people with a PDA profile struggle with everyday demands like eating, drinking, getting dressed, etc., just because their demands Mm. But this can include things they enjoy, like playing their favorite game. Mm-hmm. It's not a deliberate choice. It's a matter of can't, not, won't, with demands causing anxiety, triggering a flight, flight, freeze response if they can't be avoided. Mm. So pervasive demand avoidance is one sign to look out for. The other is the social strategies commonly used by PDA people to avoid these everyday demands. And this includes things like distraction, so changing the subject. Mm-hmm. Oh, have you seen what's out the window there? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're wearing a good jumper today. Procrastinating. Yeah, I'll do it later, in a minute. But that minute never comes. Excusing themselves, giving a reason as to why they can't. I've got stomach ache today. Sorry, I can't do PET today. Mm-hmm. Or withdrawing into fantasy or role play. So young people saying, mm, I'm a lion today. Lions can't write. Mm-hmm. So whilst these are the most significant traits, there's also other signs that people can look out for. And these include appearing really sociable on the surface, but lacking a real depth of understanding. Experiencing re- mood swings and impulsivity. The intense focus often on other people. And sometimes we're not always appearing comfortable in role play and pretend, but sometimes to an extreme extent. 
Mm, interesting. Yeah, but it's. I think at this point also really important that there are lots of strengths we see amongst autistic learners of the PDA profile. Mm -hmm. These include having a really strong sense of justice, being independent, charismatic, creative, humorous, imaginative, tenacious. Uh, I'd also like to stress, actually, it's important to acknowledge that there are different viewpoints on this. But at the PDA Society, we follow the PDA guidance, practice guidance that describes PDA as a profile of autism. So this means people will first receive a diagnosis of autism and then a PDA profile may be identified. Mm, interesting. Now, it's interesting. What I, I was going to ask, actually, how how would we recognize that? But I think you've given quite a few kind of demonstrate you know kind of ways that we would recognize it but i suppose my my question now then now we've now we've now we you've, you've mentioned and described some of those features that might be displayed i suppose teachers and leaders listening might think oh hang on a lot of those actually could be um and i think i spoke to andrew edmonds about this a couple of days ago on a, on a podcast a couple of those can quite easily be be um uh mistaken for poor behavior in terms of i know you mentioned like it's a it's either a choice or not a choice it's very, very difficult because there's a fine line between what you see when you've got 20 or 30 people in front of you. Some of those distraction techniques, et cetera, et cetera, could be quite easily seen as as, as just what people might class as naughty or, or, or disruptive behavior. So my question, therefore, then is how, how would we then be able to, to, to differentiate between what we might class as a choice and where actually maybe this isn't a choice? So I think the first thing is actually everyone needs to know the young person really well. Yeah. <laughs> and that's key. Um, and also, it's important to remember that marked demand avoidance is the most significant, but not the only trait. So uh, you're looking for other clues, being, yeah. so being curious why a behaviour is being seen. So looking at those other features I've just mentioned, and in particular, the use of social strategies, so how they're avoiding, and that need for control, remembering that need for control is driven by anxiety or an automatic th sort of threat response in the face of demands. So avoidance of the PDA kind is pervasive uh -huh. to an extreme extent with demands avoided simply because they're demands, including things they enjoy. So there's some key points there, not because it's something aversive to them. Uh -huh. So one key factor is being aware of the way PDA students avoid demands and that's using approaches that are social in nature can be really helpful. So I mentioned before that that initial demand avoidance might include social strategies. So for example, you know, a PDA learner is asked to complete a task at school. Uh -huh. To avoid it, they might say, oh, this work is boring. I did this in year five. I'm just too clever for this work. Mm -hmm. So it's not a defiant no. It's yep. going down that social strategy route. If the demand is still very direct and we leave, it's not addressed mm -hmm. and not acted upon, this can then escalate to further refusing. They may withdraw totally. They may shut down or they may just escape, leave the classroom mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to avoid the demand. So that's one sign to direct you that this isn't naughty or defiant. This is somebody who's high anxiety and struggling. Uh -huh. And uh, I think another sign that people can look out for 
is that they may well be trying those more, if you like, conventional approaches to supporting autistic learners. Consistency, structure, clarity, visual schedules. Mm -hmm. They are usually ineffective with PDA. Uh, okay. And can even exacerbate and escalate demand avoided behaviors. So that's why it's so important for professionals to identify this PDA profile so that we give the right type of support uh, of approaches okay. that's going to support our PDA learners. So I think other signs to look out for because it, this is such a perplexing mm, yeah, um, yeah. profile. So, first of all, any reports of refusal around the ordinary everyday tasks, mm -hmm. including things they that you know they like, enjoy, or things they need to do, mm -hmm. eating, drinking, washing, using the bathroom. If you've got um, a young person with a list of previous diagnosis, or indeed no formal diagnosis at all, but who is still considered as perplexing, if mm -hmm. you like. Those who have an autism diagnosis, but it doesn't quite fit, who, or who are on the cusp of it, but do not meet the autism diagnostic career, um, criteria because it's still relatively new uh -huh. so and an, an autistic student for whom those usual autism strategies that I mentioned earlier have been tried don't work uh -huh. so that's another signpost yeah um, and the other thing sadly is that regular school avoidance or repeated school exclusions okay uh -huh. so what we know um, that seven in ten PDA children are not in school or regularly struggle to attend uh -huh. And this figure is much higher than for the autistic population as a whole mm -hmm. and just shows how challenging school can be for PDA students. And then the other key point I want to stress is where very different presentations are reported between the school and home environments and or where a breakdown in communication has occurred between school and home. You know, we, we hear so often where schools saying, uh, reporting this child, well, they're fine in school, no mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. Not quite believing or seeing what parents are saying. So it's key that people understand that, that some autistic people are very adept at masking, and this is very common with PDA. So masking is where people are hiding or holding in some of their differences and their difficulties in certain environments or with certain people. Mm -hmm. So significantly, this means that challenges reported in one setting, i.e. home, may not always be seen in other settings, such as school. So this can and does lead to misunderstandings. Yeah, okay. And, and, and in yeah. terms of then, once we've then kind of identified that and we've been able to see those traits, you know, in terms of, you know, teachers listening might, might be kind of picturing two or three students and thinking, oh, hang on a second, this is maybe fits this person and it's maybe changing my understanding or my kind of appreciation of what might be the issue here and there might be something underlying with autism rather than just naughty behavior like you know like we talked before so once a member of staff has identified that either they think they've identified themselves or there's been a kind of a, a clinical or a, a, a kind of formal identification what can how can teachers best kind of support you know that these individuals and, and actually are there any strategies or classroom adaptations that kind of teachers should either use or consider or even stay away from because you know you know there's certain things we would kind of obviously avoid so a couple of questions in one there but kind of once we've identified it what's the best practice for us to do yeah okay so i think um first of all to learn as much as you can about mm -hmm. pda 
but more importantly, what PDA feels like for each student. What we know is that autism involves complex overlapping patterns of strengths, differences and challenges that present differently from one individual to another and can present differently in the same person at different times uh -huh. or in different environments. We keep a focus that PDA is also a spectrum. So sometimes it may be internalized. Mm -hmm. So where the avoidance may seem to be more subtle and passive. In other cases, it may be externalized and obvious. So I have to say there's no one size fits all. So likewise, there's no one size fits all when it comes to understanding which mm -hmm. approaches or support may be most helpful, but those need to be tailored to the individual. So I'd say supporting PDA people is about acknowledging their learning differences, changing the way we teach and working collaboratively. So come from the mindset, this process, believe in the process that PDA is an anxiety response. Mm -hmm. So being empathetic puts us in a good place to offer the best level of support. Mm -hmm. Highly likely there's some learning for us to do. So relearning the skills more around a facilitator guiding their learning. Um, keep a focus on the needs of the young person. So rather than me thinking, oh, how am I getting the students to do what I tell them or to stop doing something? Try to be curious about why a student is finding things tough. What does this student need? How can I help meet that need? So that you better understand the young person. Yeah, and, 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 and then I, I suppose, sorry, just to jump in there, I suppose, a lot of that comes around to what we would always profess in teaching is have a greater understanding of all of your young people in front of you, understand all of their needs and get to know them really, really well. You would because hope. then, like you say, it is going to be slightly different in each individual. And you can then, you know, think about each individually, you know, as, as different students, different people, different human beings, and they're all going to react differently. So, yeah, I, I, absolutely. And that just goes back to great teaching practice, doesn't it? Because we 100%. know a lot of these things are you know, for SEND students, you know, high quality, quality first teaching is what's going to make the biggest difference rather than something completely different. Actually, let's just get it right. And we can then start to narrow that gap because, you know, we know that where, where and I, I talked to Gary Orban this morning about this, about where, where teaching or where students receive poorer quality teaching, you know, SEND students, disadvantaged students, et cetera, et cetera. That's where they struggle the most and the gaps widen because they can't fill the gaps you know, from their own kind of, you know, from their own experiences or their own knowledge or their own kind of, you know, structures and things like that. So, yeah, I think that's really important to to, to, to know that, to stress yeah, that. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, you know, keeping the child at the centre um, yeah. with their agenda. And the other important thing um, I'd say to people is just really be aware of their sensory differences because sensory pro processing is often that missing link to understanding why environments and everyday activities can be so challenging for some people. So, I mean, we, we, we hit, I, I, well, so we hear, we hit, I hear that quite a bit in kind of educational talk about kind of sensory differences and processes, but to, to everyone listening, kind of what does that, just unpack that a little bit, you know, what, what does that mean for a regular classroom and an experience where there might be 25, 30 people in an English or a maths classroom? What does that mean? And, and how might that be different for people who have some of those, some of those needs? Yeah. So it's looking at your, your, your classroom in terms of um, sight, sound, um, in terms of is is the environment too too busy for the young person? Um, are they sitting in the right place? Are they sitting by the window where there's flickering lights and they're uh -huh. distracted by that? So it's actually making sure you have a real understanding of each young person's sensory differences. Uh -huh. And then it may well be that if they've got um, some um, differences around 
their image, body image, that they might need more physical activity or they might need um, sensory tools to use as de-escalation. Uh -huh. So what we hear sometimes is um, young people might be needing to fiddle with something or have something yeah. in their pocket, but then they're told to put it away on the habit. But that is regulating themselves. It's their coping strategy yeah. to deal with a difficult situation. So it's understanding each young person's sensory differences um, and, that, and, making and, sure... and that can be quite difficult, can't it? Because again, if you haven't understood the whole child or you haven't kind of had a greater appreciation of it, it can be seen as distracting or, or a kind of fiddling, like you say. Um, mm. And Andrea and I talked about this when we talked about on, on the podcast where I did it with her about uh, exactly what you said there, self-regulation and co-regulation. And, and, and Andrea pointed out that actually a, a child that might be rocking on a, on a chair might be the might it, that might be their own way to self-regulate knowing that they are hitting a stressful situation and they're almost going to you know teeter over the kind of edge and in, into that kind of red zone almost but actually by rocking on that chair it allows them to regulate themselves but to the teacher that doesn't know that or understand that and then the, sometimes it's a stop rocking on your chair oh you kind of shout that's the thing that tips it over the edge isn't it and it's it's understanding when that again and i appreciate it's very difficult to to have that understanding when you've got 30 different human beings of when you let that go and when you don't knowing each individual, but it is, a, that, but that's why, that's why we're in this, that's why we're in this profession because we're, we're skillful professionals and we can do that, you know, but. Uh, yes, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. So it, it is a really, really important issue and many reasons why the young people, you know, may well be struggling. So it's a really sort of important point. You know, often these um, young people may want to wear their coats in the classroom because they like the feeling and the sense of that tightness uh -huh. but then they're told to take the coats off because you don't wear coats in the classroom yeah you know that that type of thing um and you talked about um strategies to consider or stay mm. away from yeah uh i think it's fairly clear just from what i've already said that pj is extremely complex there's no question it's tough for teachers yeah. uh -huh. to meet needs but the degree of support a student needs will vary depending on the degree in which their PDA manifests, which can be to a greater or a lesser degree. But we have to remember it can, this can vary at different times and at different stages, depending on how comfortable they feel in the situation. But I suppose we, we strongly recommend using what we call low arousal approaches. So this is where we try to keep anxiety to a minimum, provide a sense of control, because that's what they need. They're mm -hmm. good starting points. Yeah. When we're thinking about work, what you know, what works for PDA. Um, so again, there isn't one list of approaches for the other autism profiles, yeah, yeah, and yeah. one for PDA. It's adapting and combination of the two with those individualized adaptations. What to avoid is those conventional or traditional approaches that probably many of your listeners will be using and mm -hmm. those that are recommended for autism that rigid routine that structure those traditional firm boundaries rewards consequences they are not only ineffective but actually make things worse yeah although we're beginning to learn more and more about how to support our artistic learners and we recognize that that many ideas actually we suggest for pda learners also need to be considered for the autistic community as a whole mm -hmm. So at the PDA Society, we use the panda as our ambassador for PDA. Yeah. 
because pandas need the right environment to thrive with specific approaches tailored to their needs. Mm-hmm. And the same can be said for PDA children. Very nice. So on our website, we have a mnemonic, which is a simple reminder of helpful approaches. And the overall message, you see the person, explore their interests genuinely, and engage with them positively. So if you break that mnemonic down into the P, this is about picking our battles, mm-hmm. about referring, minimizing rules, make sure to you enable some choice and control for the young person, explain the reasons for a rule, the reasons and the purpose of a lesson. Mm-hmm. They need to know that, what's in it for them. They accept that some things can't be done, uh, maybe due to high anxiety. The A in the panda, we refer to the anxiety management. So this is about, say, using that low arousal approach. And by that, we mean being really aware of our body language Mm -hmm. and really about being curious and understanding the role of the situation the young person's in, identifying those triggers and using more sort of low intensity solutions to support. Mm -hmm. The A also comes in that we re- to reduce uncertainty. So in addressing that intolerance, uncertainty that these young people um, find really tough. Recognizing that underlying anxiety is social and those sensory challenges. Mm-hmm. Think and plan ahead, absolutely key. And then the, any distress behaviors we see refer to these are panic attacks. Mm-hmm. So we support throughout and then move on accordingly. Mm-hmm. The N in the panda is all around negotiation and collaboration. Mm-hmm. Absolutely key. Yeah. We ourselves within that lower arousal approach need to keep ourselves calm, but we need to proactively collaborate and negotiate to solve challenges. And at the center of our teaching, there has to be a the PDA learner has to see a fairness with trust being absolutely key to engagement. Yeah. The D of Panda stands for disguising and managing demands. Uh-huh. So this is really rephrasing demands. We can't live in a totally demand-free world, yep. but we can Absolutely. change the way demands are uh-huh. referred to. So phrases are requested indirectly. So instead of saying something like, come on, you need to start your work, Mm -hmm. you might say something, you can start with your name and your date first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are you going to use the red or the the blue pen Mm -hmm. for this? Shall we do the work in the library today or would you prefer to stay in class? Mm -hmm. And give them a choice so they feel like they're in control. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Not difficult to do, but we have to change our mindset a bit. Yeah. And then knowing the child really well. So you're constantly monitoring tolerance for demands and you match those demands you know, accordingly. So know when the young person's anxiety is rising uh-huh. and act accordingly. So you stop them getting to that distress behavior and a panic yeah. attack. And they do find doing things together helps. So sharing work, modeling work uh-huh. are all key approaches to try and consider. Okay. And the A, the final A, is about that adaptation. Mm-hmm. So adapting your teaching style to support these learners. Humour works fantastically well. 
distraction, certainly through transitions, mm -hmm. to avoid that fear of the uncertainty yeah. can work well. Novelty, role play mm -hmm. are all key key attributes I'd say put into your teaching toolkit. Yeah. Flexibility around the whole day, times of the day, um, how the work is completed. Always have a plan B, allow plenty of time. They 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 need much more processing time uh -huh. than other learners. And it's about balancing the amount of give and take. So I suppose pulling that all together, we'd say a personalized student-led approach built on building trust. Uh -huh. It's based on collaboration and negotiation with the, the student, careful use of language uh -huh. with a more indirect style of teaching. Perfect. It's, and and, and a, a, there's a lot in there in, in, in that. I'm sure listeners will be able to go to the website and kind of have a look at that kind of, you know, that Panda model. But all of it was hung around knowing the student, wasn't it? You know, and actually kind of understanding, knowing the student, um, you know, knowing them well, even from where they're sitting to how you're going to frame that question, to how you're going to give the choice, to how you're going to use the distraction because you know that they're going to be stressed about the changeover, all that type of stuff. And, and it really does come down to that. If you haven't got that firm understanding of the students in front of you, then you're not really going to be able to provide the best experience for them in, in, in the classroom. Um, one, one of the, the last question I'm going to ask then is that the question I've been asking all of all of my kind of send guests over the last kind of couple of days, almost a bit of a soapbox moment for a little bit of a soundbite or a kind of couple of sentences to leave people with. If there was one lasting message uh, that you'd like to leave our listeners with today about PDA and autism, what would it be, Julie? Okay, so my key message would be strong commitment to inclusion, not expecting the child to simply fit in. Prioritise building a positive relationship to build that trust, but mm -hmm. be honest what you can and can't do, but put it in a way that's more non-confrontational. Adapt our way of teaching to make it work. Mm -hmm. For our PDA students, listen to the students, listen to their families. Mm -hmm. So that reflective team approach as well, um, that's quite innovative and creative. If we've got time, I have got a quote, and I asked one of my students. Mm. Um, yes, that'd be, would, that'd be fantastic. Yes, please. What yeah. they would say. So this yeah. is a quote from a seventeen-year-old. Um, Get proper training in PDA for all staff. Mm -hmm. Make all of them follow PDA-friendly strategies. Mm -hmm. uh, this would mean the child having some autonomy, making some of their own choices, being able to self-regulate, having regular breaks having somewhere appropriate to calm down, et cetera. Staff will all need to be to to totally alter their approach and thinking on what is right for the child. Be willing to think outside the box. Be willing to have plans A, B, C, and D, as they will probably be needed. Hmm. Speak to parents and others who know the child well and use their advice and information to help the child. Well, there we go. That's right <laughs> you know, from the horse's mouth, isn't it, in terms of from a student and we should absolutely we we need to be following that middle advice that he that he or she mentioned there about listen to the students well we are we are doing that right now so that's a that's a perfect way to kind of end this so thank you so much for a really interesting discussion today julian i think that if our listeners have been as interested and as kind of educated i suppose as i've been over the last kind of 20 or 30 minutes on kind of pda then i need to tell them that further helps at hand because i know you're running an online training webinar for us on the 9th of december um, and all the details on how to book if you're interested in this can be found on our training website, which is yes at aretelearningtrust.net. And that's yes, Y-E-S-A-T, rather than the at sign, arete, R, sorry, A-R-E-T-E, learning trust. So yes at aretelearningtrust.net. And then if you click on the training advanced tab, you'll be able to find all the details on how to sign up 
for Julie's training. So, Julie, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you today. I certainly feel like I've been educated on that. Um, and um, hopefully all of our listeners will be as well, too. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I just hope everyone's found that, that useful. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to the ALT Learn podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode where we'll be speaking to more of our teachers and finding out how they're turning theory into practice. Until then, take care.